We have two more um, sermons in the, in the pastoral epistles. And we've kind of given you a little heads up warning for January, but uh, in case you missed it, start reading what's called the Minor Prophets. And you can start in Hosea and move forward from there. And, and we encourage you to study. And even if you're kind of new to studying scripture, um, you know, we invite you to come on Monday nights. That's part of what John goes through on Monday nights. Um, but even if you're new to it, it's good to to start to study and not just first time you hear stuff is when John or I are preaching or teaching. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak, of no ev- uh, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, this is near the end of this letter to Titus, and and he's re-emphasizing this this familiar teaching that we see in all of Paul's writings and and that we saw in the pastoral epistles. And at the heart of it is like this, this teaching of you need to be Christ-like in all your relationships. There is not any relationship out there. There's not any person, whether it's a casual relationship, whether it's a relationship with the cashier at the grocery store, whether it's with your closest friend, your closest family member, people who love you, people who hate you, it doesn't matter. In all of those relationships, be Christ-like. But Paul also keeps bringing up this truth that's so important. And it's this thing that we talk about here a lot when we talk about what makes Christianity different from other faiths. Paul doesn't have to keep saying it because he said it enough and the people understand it. But as, as soon as he's saying, be Christ-like in all your relationships, what should be echoing in their minds is, but we cannot. It is impossible. We cannot do this on our own. We must have God to do so for us. And so we, we, we find him returning again and again to what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. So back in chapter 1, you know, there was the, the fundamental problem in, in, in these churches that, that for whatever reason, they had found themselves in a situation where they didn't have qualified pastors. And so Paul's telling Titus, you know, that's job one. And the problem is that, that when you don't have the qualified pastors and you kind of double down on that by not having people in the church who understand what to even look for in a qualified pastor, well, that makes them very open to false teachers. Because if I don't really understand the gospel or I don't really understand what sound doctrine is, then, then somebody comes along and they start teaching or preaching, what am I going to actually judge it on? How do I know? So they have this problem. And, and Paul's like summary to, to Titus, his instruction to Titus the starting point and really the point that you continue on is what we see at chapter two, teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. 
You know, sometimes when, as Christians, we get kind of, you know, we get kind of frustrated if, if we're either in a situation where they're not really teaching Christianity and you, and you get kind of frustrated in a way because you go, okay, I know the general premise. I got the basic tenets. Okay, I got this. Um, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll keep coming to church. I'll keep humoring the pastor and, and going to Bible studies, but I don't really need to know anymore. So you have people like that who don't even realize that there's more. And then there's others that, 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 that hunger for more. And then there's others that just get tired of learning. You know that phrase, lifelong learner? It's kind of scary to them. You know, they, they just are trying to get that, you know, just get it so they don't ever have to be a student again. I think this goes back to how we felt when a lot of us might have been in high school, you know, or even in college. It's like all we wanted to do was finish. You know, we didn't want to learn. We wanted to finish. That was our goal, finish. As though as soon as you graduate from high school or college, you no longer ever have to be a student again. And all of us who are older were like, that's so stupid. That's so naive. Like, that is, you know, if you really haven't learned anything since high school, and maybe you have friends like that, they're scary people to be around. But this idea of, of, of like learning, people get tired, they're going, ah, enough learning, enough growing. It just seems like there's more and more and more to know. Yeah, there is. But remember, we called this series Relentless Truth, which means like qualified pastoral leaders need to be relentlessly teaching sound doctrine. It doesn't mean that's all that we do. But we have to do that. We have to help our church continue to grow deeper and deeper in its knowledge of God's word, who God is, what the gospel is, how he would use us, how everything is connected, and why. Why is that? Well, we've already seen. One is you're not going to be open to false teachers. The second is if you're ever in a situation where you need to call the next pastoral leaders, you're going to be better situated to call. And in fact, they will probably come from among you. But there's another thing, not just preventing problems. It also helps us be a healthy church. The more we understand sound doctrine, the healthier our church is. And Paul makes that connection. If you go back to chapter 2 and he says teach sound doctrine, he immediately follows that up with, here's what all these relationships in the church should look like. And then he takes a break and he actually presents to them this incredible summary of the gospel. And now he comes back here in chapter 3 and he says, and this is what, this is what will result not just within the church, but how you relate to people outside the church. It helps with sound doctrine. Teaching sound doctrine helps us with with being a healthier church internally, but also being a healthier witness to the world around us. Understand, teaching sound doctrine, Paul is saying it from the perspective of, of Titus. Titus, you're the pastor. Teach sound doctrine. But what's, what's also presumed here that Paul's not saying, because this is, this is directed at Titus, but what he's saying to the church is, learn sound doctrine. It's, the process isn't complete if the pastors simply teach it. It has to be learned. It has to be understood. It has to be kind of taken in. So the, the whole process is teach and learn. And it's really hard to learn if you're not here. And I mean that in two respects. You know, you go, well, I don't need to be here because you guys record everything, right? Yeah, we do. And you can certainly learn by listening to the recordings. In fact, I encourage you to do that, to even to go back and check it out. Sometimes it takes us, you know, listening to something two or three times before we really kind of grasp what's being said. 
But you might go, well, I, I don't have to be here then, right? Well, if all that we're talking about are words and concepts and, you know, statements of belief, if that's all that we are talking about, Christianity is, yeah, you're right, you don't need to be here. In fact, none of us needs to be here. You know, John and I could just record a message and send it to you, um, and we could all do, you know, be, you know, watching football or surfing, shopping, sleeping in. But you need to be here because learning sound doctrine doesn't just come from the teaching learning. It comes from, from being the church gathered together, ministering together, serving together, caring about one another. You know, I, I love to see things like what happened last Sunday at our church. You know, there's, there's some, some people, I've been in churches where when my dad was in Texas, in Oklahoma, you know, there was this farmer guy, and I didn't know his name, I don't even know who he was, I just remember my dad talking about him, but this farmer guy said, church is supposed to end at noon. We started church at 1045. That guy, there could be, you know, 20 people coming forward to be saved, and he's like, it's noon, time to get out of here, and he'd be out the back door. There's people like that, there's Christians like that, there's like, Man, I've done my duty, I did my morning thing, um, I'm good for the week, I'm gone. But last week, we didn't just have one opportunity to serve, we had two opportunities to serve on a Sunday afternoon. And I know some of you love, you find as sacred your Sunday afternoon nap, you know, and you gave that up, you were here. You know, you guys, you guys packed 200 Operation Christmas Child Boxes. You made meals for the homeless people. I love that. But being part of that, participating in that, fellowshipping together, being together, I want to challenge you guys. I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't put this in the, in the note so somebody can translate for people who might, not, who might not get this, but I want to challenge you as we go into November and December, there are going to be some of our, our holiday events, our Christmas season events, that the only thing planned in the event is that we eat and we hang out together as a church family. There's a lot of Christians who have a hard time with that. We have to be doing something. If we're not doing something, there's no point in gathering. If we're not having a Bible study, if we're not serving, we're not doing this or that, there is something about just being together. There's something about just sharing your lives together. It, this doesn't work if, if we have a, you know, if we have a Christmas fellowship and you sit with the same people you're sitting with right now, the same people you've sat with for the past 20 years. It doesn't work. You can do that on your own. But when you start to like, to like engage and get to know others, Yesterday, we, we had the deacons and pastors over to, to our house, and we, you know, we have done this you know, a couple years in a row. Where last year, it was at Eric's house. This year, it was at our house. And there's no program. There's nothing special. It's just people talking, just people getting to know one another, people hearing each other's stories, knowing what's going on in their lives. You got to be here. Because what happens is we start to see sound doctrine being lived. We start to be encouraged when maybe we're going to be discouraged because we think we're the only one going through this and we're the only one thinking this and we're the only one struggling with this or we're the only one going in this direction thinking we got it right. We have to have the whole process of teaching and learning and as several weeks ago, I told you, you know, one of the, the, the characteristics of a healthy church, the way that Paul's presenting it here, is that we begin to take responsibility for each other's spiritual growth. I'm not simply here for myself and my own piety or my own relationship to Jesus Christ. But I take responsibility for everybody else in the church, which means partly praying for them, being concerned about them, getting to know them, Sometimes it's going to take the more tough love of trying to hold people accountable. 
Sometimes it's just the check-in, the real check-in, not the Sunday morning check-in. Hey, how was your week? Oh, it's good. That's not the real check-in. But it's really, you know, asking, wanting to know. And some people aren't there yet. They're not ready to share, and you just kind of got to back off. You can't force them. It's against the law. But you can ask. You can check in. You want to know, like, your connection to this church? Who's your check-in people here? Who are the people that check into your life and say, you know, what's going on? Or if they know something's going on, they come and say, hey, I, I know, you know, you, you had a, like a tough week. How you doing? How many people check in with you? And then, how many people do you check in on? How many people do you care enough about that? Whether they're going through anything or not, you are regularly just saying, hey, how's everything going? And you know it's not just that, that casual, polite, hey, it's going great. We take responsibility. It doesn't mean, again, that, that we personally are responsible for discipling each other, but we care. When this happens, there's stronger, healthier relationships throughout the church. And as we're going to look at today, when this happens, when we have this sound doctrine, what happens is we will be more Christ-like, not only in the church, but we'll be Christ-like in how we treat others outside the church. You know, and since I've been here, you know, I've used this phrase because I've from the beginning, I talked about context, how important context is, and how important, like, we just talked about the context of Titus 3. But I always have this thing in where I talk about where we live, because I think it's important that we need to know our context. And some of these are, like, observations I have, not just about our church, but about Christianity in general. And when I think about where we live, I think about what Christ, the state of Christianity is today, yeah, there's a lot of like incredible, dynamic, growing churches. There's a lot of you know, strong believers who are living out their faith, but there's a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Christians who, who have this incredible faith. They strongly live out a faith, but they only understand it a little. They have a shallow or incomplete understanding, but they are faithful. You can't really talk to them about their faith because they don't really understand it. They're just doing it. And of course, there's problems with that. But then there's another group that has a deeper understanding. They're like the Bible theology nerds. You know, they, they know all this stuff, but they're not willing to live it out. They're more than willing to learn about it, and they may be even willing to teach it, but they're not going to live it out. You ever had the, you know, the Bible teacher or the, those of you who might have gone to Bible college or seminary, you know, the person who is talking about the truth of God's word, but, you know, you don't really see, like, they seem angry or they seem like they don't even like students and they're just there. They have an understanding of what the Bible says should happen to us when Jesus Christ changes our lives, but they're not willing to live it out. What happens in these situations when we have a shallow or incomplete understanding of the gospel? Well, we can be like the churches at Crete where we'll be vulnerable to false teachings. And you know what's scary? If we strongly believe, I mean, if we strongly live out what we only shallowly believe, we will also strongly live out false teachings and you won't even know it when we have a shallow or incomplete understanding of the gospel it limits our growth we can grow but it's limited you know you can use the analogy of a plant you know you you put like a tree into like a small pot it's only going to grow so big you know i've never done this with fish but I understand certain fish, they will only grow as big as the tank. They're limited. When you only have a shallow or you have an incomplete understanding of the gospel, you'll be limited in how much you can grow. You can grow, 
but there'll be a limit. It will also limit your ability to love God. Why is that? Well, we can't, the way we just in any relationship are able to love each other better is because we know each other better. If you limit your understanding of who God is, you can only love him in that limited way. The more you understand who God is, the more your love for him can grow. This also limits our ability to answer questions from non-Christians. It limits our ministry to non-Christians because people are going to be like, well, why do you believe that? And you're like, well, because I do. Why is it true? Because it's true. Well, that's great. That doesn't help the non-Christian. That deep understanding that's not lived out. When you see that person who can expound greatly on God's word, but the, it's not apparent in their lives, what is that? Well, first of all, it makes them appear hypocritical. What I've seen this often kind of, kind of evolve into in, the, in that person, and especially if they're a pastor, what it leads to is it leads to some kind of some pridefulness in their knowledge. Or it leads to some kind of legalism. Because they're not really embracing the truth that they understand. They have to try to make it their lives look like that. So to make it look like that, they have to make sure there's rules and rituals that we follow. Sometimes it results in this very judgmental attitude. Judgmental attitude of, I know more than you. Even though you may be living out the faith better than me, you're not very smart. And we become judgmental. <clears throat> and of course, like the shallow or incomplete understanding, it limits how much we can grow in Christ because we ultimately are not surrendering to Christ. It limits our ability to love for God, I mean to love God, because even though we have a deeper knowledge of God, it's not leading to love for God. And of course, this then hinders our ability and or desire to help non-Christians. Truly learning about who God is always leads to a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. If we're truly pursuing knowledge of God and we're truly learning and acquiring knowledge for God, it will always result in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. So we go to, to this and go, well, how can we overcome it? Well, we already said one of the ways to overcome the shallow or incomplete understanding of the gospel is to teach and learn sound doctrine. Talked about that. Well, how about the other problem of not living out what we know well, that again, it comes from being the church, gathered together, being the church, relating to one another, living out the faith, living out the love that God has poured out upon us. So Paul here is going to, you know, in chapter 2, he talked about what it looked like in the church. In chapter 3 at the beginning, he talks about how we relate to people outside the church, but ultimately... He is, he is making this tie between what we know and who we are. And the first thing he tells us in verses 1 and 2, especially when we're dealing with people outside the church, he says we must act in a way consistent with Christ in us. We must act in a way that's consistent with Christ in us. Saying Christ in us is great, it's true if we're believers, but that needs to also be shown in our lives. What you see Paul listing there, the things that he says, being submissive to rulers and authorities, being obedient, being ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy, none of that is inconsistent with being Christ-like. And again, this is the connection. The connection is how do we... How do we 
act in a way consistent with Christ in us. Well, it always goes back to discipleship. If we are truly being discipled, we're not just gaining knowledge, but we're being more and more transformed to be more like Christ. We're going to understand more and more of what, you know, how Christ would, would be in every situation. This is, you know, this was brought up on, on Wednesday, and I think John had brought it up a week earlier in, in Dahl, but this is not the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because it is impossible for you to do what Jesus would do, and even if you did it, you could not do it for the reasons he did it. That kind of separates it from, no, if I grow in my knowledge of who God is, who Jesus is, what the Word teaches, if I grow in that knowledge and I trust that through the Word and, and through God's Spirit that I will be transformed, then I know that Paul has already said good works will be produced. I will do what Jesus would do. But if I say, you know what, I don't like that learning discipleship stuff, I just kind of want to jump right to what Jesus would do. No. You may do exactly the same thing as the other person who follows the path of discipleship, but in God's eyes, this person is, is doing because of who he is or she is in Christ. This person is doing it by their own works. No, it's not Christianity. But people kind of want to jump to that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He can only tell them to do all these things because he's already established for them and he's actually going to remind them again that the only reason that they can be this way, that they're not like the rest of the people in Crete, is not because they're special. It's because of what God did, through, did to them through Jesus Christ. Some people misunderstand these verses because they take them out of context. Paul's not saying blindly obey all your rulers and authorities above you. He is specifically talking about governing authorities. But he, we already have the context, and we know Paul himself didn't just do whatever the governing authorities said. In fact, he told some of the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem, like, I'm not going to go against what God says. But I wanted to bring this up, not because it's a major point, but because I hear that a lot from Christians. And I wanted to bring it up because I want to ask you this question. If you're going to use that as an argument against following your government. Do you know God enough to know when the government's going against God? You cannot use that argument unless you are willing to know God deeply. Otherwise, it's just an excuse or justification for your behavior. Do you know God well enough to know that what is being asked of you goes against what God would direct. There's easy ones. You know, there's some that are what we call low-hanging fruit, easy to spot. Yeah, that's definitely wrong. There's a lot of other times people like to pull out this argument. Say it goes against their conscience and goes against their their religious convictions. All right, you do have that right in the United States. But if anybody asks me these questions, I will always go back and say, so what do you think God actually believes about this? How is this actually wrong? 
we are to act in a way consistent with Christ in us. But if we're going to create the exceptions in terms of like being submissive to rulers and authorities, we need to be pretty sure we know what God wants, which gets back to the idea of true discipleship. So Paul here, he's telling them, this is the way you should, you should treat people outside the church, those in authority and then everyone else. And he's including everything. If you look at this list, verses 1 through 2, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is exhaustive in a way because he's saying it should re- be reflected in your words. It should be reflected in your actions. And here's the toughest one. It should be reflected in your attitude. It's not just your words and your action. It's, your, it's in your attitude. It's in it's in the whole motivation, the reason you're doing these things. And, and he kind of sums it up like the, the two ways that you might think about this is, is that your, your attitude, your speech, your actions, they, they should be respectful to people. And it should also be with the idea of trying to help them. It doesn't mean that Again, that you are just like just condoning or endorsing whatever somebody's behavior is. I'm not saying that at all. But it is saying that our attitude should be respectful. We all know this, right? We all know when someone comes to us and is trying to help us and help us see something or trying to change our be our behavior, our decision. And we know when they're doing it out of respect and when they're doing it by being condescending. Which one do you respond to better? (laughs) Pretty sure it's the respect one. We don't want, you know, the person patronizing. There was a phrase that I'm glad has kind kind of fallen out of vogue, but it was... It was called mansplaining. You guys know what that means? Mansplaining. And it was always this criticism of, of men who always want to over-explain. And, and I'm like, have you been in my house? My wife was mansplaining before I knew what mansplaining was. And she ain't no man. It's not just men. It's not just women. It's just certain people. They're, their attitude is they got to like be like, I know you don't know, you need to listen to me. And it can be because I'm older, because I'm more educated, because I'm more successful, but it's condescending. And as Christians, that's tempting because you do know something they don't know. You have been walking with the Lord. You have seen the benefits of life in Christ. But it can be condescending if we're not careful. He says, be respectful. And the idea is to help. And, you know, to kind of sum this up, you know, we use the phrase new life in Christ, you know, the being led by the Spirit. We, we use phrases like being Christ-like. And Paul will use this phrase in Galatians, what should be apparent in our lives is the fruit of the Spirit. And understand what that means. The fruit of the Spirit, it should be apparent in our lives, means that, that the fruit comes from the Spirit in our lives. It is not me manufacturing patience. It is not me pretending to be gentle and kind when inside my head I'm like, why can't you get this? What is wrong with you? But outside I'm like, okay, let's go over this again. Right? No. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is who we are already are and who we also are becoming. It should be apparent in our lives. He's, 
and he gives us so many different like examples that cover so many relationships. But above all, that it's just this it's just I want to be consistent as one who has Christ in us. In a sense, I'm I'm a Christ bearer. I'm as Paul calls us, an ambassador for Christ. Paul then helps them and, you know, kind of understand why this, you know, why you can do this, why this is so important. And in verse 3, he reminds them of who they were, who they were before Christ. And he says, we, got, we have to remember that. We have to remember who we were in Christ, not to beat ourselves up, not to feel guilty. That shouldn't be the reason at all. We remember who we were in Christ so that that we remember when we could not understand the truth, when we saw people loving us and we didn't realize it, when we were slaves to our sin and we thought we were captains of our lives. Do you remember that? He's saying you've got to remember that because those are the people you're trying to reach. We have to remember what we thought of Christians before we became Christians. And Paul, above all, knows this. Because we know what Paul thought of Christians before he became a Christian. He hated them. He thought they were not worthy of existence. They needed to be wiped out. They were blasphemers. See, when we remember these things, then it helps us remember the context that we were in and the context that the non-Christians are in right now. And why do we want to understand context? Because when we understand context, we can communicate better. We can communicate the gospel to them in a way that they can understand where they are now, not the way we understand where we are now. I mean, just look at what he says. We were once foolish. We couldn't see the wisdom of God. We, we don't look at the cross. We don't think of Christmas. We don't think, see the resurrection. We don't hear the gospel and think, that is genius, God. That is genius. That is awesome. Instead, we were foolish and we thought, that's stupid. That's make-believe. That's not real. He says, you remember that? Remember when your, your spirit was just about like disobedience and, and, and wanting to go against everything. Talks about being when you were slaves and you didn't even realize you were slaves. You thought you were free. You thought you were freer than those Christians who were living according to some kind of code of ethics because you could live however you wanted and you thought you were free, but you in fact were slaves to your passions and pleasures. And he says, remember, remember how it was when you were, you know, before Christ, when, when everything was about, you know, what, you know, how you were going to protect yourself, how you were going to get what you wanted in this world, how you were going to keep people from getting the stuff you had. Remember how you, you kind of made friends because you knew those friends could somehow help you? And then when those friends could no longer help you, you either made other friends or you actually became their enemies. Remember that? You remember how you were so consumed with yourself and getting what you wanted. Remember that? Those are the people you're trying to reach. Those are the people that you're trying to communicate the gospel to. I became a Christian when I was so young that I don't remember you know, so many things, but some of you know, if we asked, like took a survey, how many times did you have to hear the gospel before you became a Christian? Some of you is like, it could be like once, but a lot of you it was like a long time. Many times. We have to remember that. 
But again, Paul's not saying, remember this because I want you to feel bad about yourself, because I want you to feel guilty. No, I want you to know how you, why you should treat these non-Christians this way, why you should go above and beyond. But then he says in verses 4 through 7, and a lot of Bible scholars actually think this was something that might have been recited in the church or even sung in the church. But he says, we need to remember what God accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that. We need to remember who we were, and then we need to remember what God did for us through Jesus Christ. Because when we remember those two things, one, remembering who we were helps us communicate better, helps us understand their context better, but knowing what Christ did for us keeps us with that right attitude. It wasn't because God thought I was special. It wasn't because I had earned enough points that now I was acceptable to God. It wasn't because, because you know, I met a certain criteria that, that, that made you know, God choose me. It helps us to be humble. And it helps us to understand that if we're going to relate to people outside this church in a way that Paul's saying, where the fruit of the Spirit, where God's love is abundant, that it doesn't mean that they all are going to suddenly go, oh, that's awesome, I want to become a Christian too. It's not going to be because of our example. That might get their attention, that might cause them to ask questions. But you need to be reminded, Paul is telling Titus and telling the Christians in, on Crete, you need to be reminded that your salvation was a work of God, accomplished through Jesus Christ. It wasn't a human work. So what do we see in these verses where Paul has just so packed in verses four through seven? He begins by talking about the, the perfectly good God who loves humanity. For some reason, the ESV, and I didn't unpack it all, kind of, kind of hides this word where it's translated loving kindness. It's actually literally this Greek word that we get the word philanthropy from. It actually means lover of human beings, loving human beings, loving people. And, and we, we get that first, right up there at the beginning. And then he, he, he reveals himself to us. Notice he says, but when the gospel and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he reveals himself to us. And he reveals himself to us with the purpose of saving us. And he saves us not because of our works, but because of his mercy and grace. The Greek, again, makes this even more powerful, like Paul's main point, even though he's talking about salvation, he's talking about salvation so that they understand that, that this is an act of God. If you look in where it says he saved us, in the Greek text, that, that comes at the end of that sentence. When it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared not because of works done in by righteousness. He's like, not because of works. That's not why God appeared. That's not why you're saved. But it was according to his own mercy he saved us. And he says he saved us from our sins by giving us new life in Christ. There's not a, it's not a like either or, it's not a I can choose both, but I can also just choose one. It's no, he is our savior who is also the author of life. He gives us new life in Christ. He's telling those, the, the Christians at Crete, 
the reason you now live this way, the reason you live in this world with seeing the world differently, seeing each other differently, seeing yourself differently, seeing your, your, your community differently, the reason you know joy that you didn't know before and that you know love that you didn't know before, you know peace you didn't know before, the reason is because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how he renews us. He renews us and, and it says, he talks about the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us, on, on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He didn't just sprinkle the Holy Spirit on us. He just didn't give little drops here and there. It says he pours out abundantly the Holy Spirit on us. It's the question that we should ask ourselves as a church. If we're all believers in Christ and we're all here together and, and we take this to be true that, that, that through Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit is being poured out abundantly on this church, then no one should ever have to really look hard for evidence of the Spirit in this church. And the primary evidence of Spirit is God's love. No one should have to look hard to find God's love in this church because it's abundantly poured out. Abundantly poured out. Our carpets should be saturated with God's love because it's so abundantly poured out. It should smell like God's love in here, whatever that smells like. It should be so abundant And then it says he justifies us. He justifies us. He takes care of that legal standing we have before God. We are just before, just before God, not because we have earned justice, but because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. And then he says, he just drops it in with one word. We may, might become heirs. We might become heirs he doesn't just justify us. He doesn't just clean us up. He doesn't just give us new life and say, okay, go live your life. He adopts us into his family. And I know you guys are like, inside, when I say that, inside, I know what you're saying is, amen, hallelujah, God, awesome. But outside, you're just quiet. I know that. So, you know, most of you, if you nod, I'm pretty sure inside there's a party going on. But if the fact that you have been adopted into the family of God is not something that, that lets you know that God has not just given us mercy and grace, he's poured out grace, grace upon grace. We didn't even deserve to be created. He creates us. When we rejected him, we didn't deserve salvation. He makes a way of salvation. When we're saved, we didn't deserve to be made clean. We didn't deserve new life in Christ, and we certainly didn't deserve to be adopted into his family, and yet that has all been poured out upon you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. He's reminding, he's reminding these Cretan Christians of this, and he overcomes death so that we might have eternal life with him. And just so you know, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, eternal life means life forever with Jesus. Which means when you became a Christian, Jesus became part of your life. You now are experiencing eternal life. And ultimately, what Paul summarizes this all in verse 8 he summarizes it where he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He's talking about how, how he's kind of going through this, what we read earlier about when he said the bond servants, when they do these things in a Christ-like way, they adorn the doctrine of God. 
And remember, we talked about that meant display correctly the the doctrine of God. Put it in order. We get the order. True faith in the truth of the gospel will lead to transformation by the Spirit that leads to good works. You can't get this out of order. You can't say, I'm just going to do good works and I'll be acceptable to God. You can't just say, I'm just going to ignore the gospel part. I'm just going to try to do the spirit thing. And you can't just cut it off. You can't go, I'm going to accept the truth of the gospel, but I'm going to not have to really think about the transformation by the spirit or the good works. No, when we get this right, when we get this right, when we're gone through the proper adorning, when we go in this order, what happens is we are always humble because we know any good work we do is from God, not because of us. We might receive some of the praise. People might say, that was awesome what you did for us. But we know it's from God. When we get this right, when this is actually what's happening in our life, that Christ is alive and working in us because of faith in Jesus Christ, we will never feel superior to non-Christians. Ever. In fact, you shouldn't feel superior to Christians who are struggling in their faith. Because you know that whoever you are and whatever you are in Christ, it is because of Christ in you. This will motivate us to do good works. And we'll be motivated because of God's love. We don't do good works to earn anything, to prove anything. We simply do it because God's love is in our lives and God's love leads to good works. And it means we'll do good works even when we're opposed, even when we're disrespected, even when we're unthanked, even when we're kind of unmotivated. We will still do good works because God's love will not allow us to do otherwise. You see, when we understand that any good in us is from God, when we really understand that, then we can honestly say to anyone who asks us why we do what we do, it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's not just a trite phrase, it's not just something you throw on a t-shirt, it's the truth lived.